Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. People doubt the Bible. They make excuses for difficult verses and express concern about biblical metaphors that fall out of step with cultural norms. Instead of placing trust in the teaching, maybe they trust in their own words about the teaching. Maybe they co-opt the Bible to serve their political ideology or their religion, placing trust not in God, but in princes and sons of men. We say we want God to command us, but not really. All men, David proclaims, are liars. We lie to ourselves and we lie to God. When the going gets tough, we do not want to teach what we are commanded to teach, and we definitely do not want to walk according to its precepts. We think it's too hard, too risky, or too out of step. O oh, ye of little faith. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 to 34. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 313 of the Bible as Literature podcast. I know that people are asking, why keep talking about the connection between John the Baptist and Paul, and by extension, Paul and Jesus? Well, I keep talking about it because it's a critical feature of the New Testament. I'm not going to go into how Matthew and Mark established this connection uh, in great detail today. I'm just going to assume the connection and make the deeper point once again that there's this paradigm in Scripture where, as we've said in the past, people want to stop Jesus, but you have only one chance in each of the four Gospels to stop Jesus. You can kill him. Once you kill him, if his teaching is still on the move, there's nothing else you can do. And that's certainly a key point later in the Gospel of Matthew with the famous text that appears in the baptism service in our tradition, where suddenly the mountain of Sinai appears out among the nations, and you're commanded to go forth and make disciples of the teaching. In Mark, it was about Jesus escaping from the prison of the temple, the prison of the tomb that tried to seal the scroll of God's instruction up and control it. Here, in chapter 14 of Matthew, we already see a similar pattern. But again, what's interesting is that the one who was teaching was John the Baptist, who is analogous to Paul within the scriptural tradition. So you have essentially this prophetic-slash-apostolic function preparing the way of the Lord, as we hear in Mark, who is drawing on Isaiah, but this one is preaching repentance and heralding the coming of the kingdom. 
and then the king murders the prophet, and you expect failure, but in fact, Jesus receives word of the prophet's execution and goes on the move. That theme is continued here in verse 22 forward in a very specific way that draws our attention to these connections. This pericope about John the Baptist interrupts the flow of Jesus moving with his disciples. Literarily, this actually raises a question for us about why it was here. Why is it placed in this particular position? And why is it here at all? How does it help the story? How does it help things progress as far as character and scene? We have to continue to ask that question because this chapter consists of three parts. The part where John the Baptist is confronting Herod, then the feeding of the 5,000, and now this section. So they come together. I mean, we're so used to, in our culture, looking at chunks of the Bible, and we don't look at the Bible as literature. We don't see how the pieces connect. It's impossible to understand a mosaic by looking at one tile. You have to look at multiple tiles, and what image is it trying to portray? John the Baptist doesn't just function in that pericope. It functions for the rest of the book. Whatever references tie back with that pericope of John the Baptist versus Herod, we have to pay attention. That episode was put in this chapter to flavor or to color upcoming stories about how Jesus moves with his disciples. He went on a ship to a desert, and now he's going on a ship to leave that desert. So the other question arises then, why did Jesus show up in this desert anyway? Like, it didn't even make sense when you look to see. He just goes to the desert, feeds a bunch of people, teaches them, and then leaves to get back on the ship. There was a clear reason why he went to that desert. It was to appear in a desert in order to teach. But Once he taught, as we've seen throughout the book, he leaves and he moves on to the next scene where he's going to continue to sow the seed, colored by this story of John the Baptist, which we can't ignore. And right away here in verse 22, the word here, which is translated as immediately, is ephtheos. This is a word, ephthes, ephtheos, that appears repeatedly in the Gospel of Mark, immediately. He made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Jesus was against sending the crowds away in the previous parable. But now, after he's done the work of instruction, he's sending the disciples out ahead of him across the Roman Sea, and he's sending the crowds away, and he is ascending the mountain by himself to pray. It's symbolically the mountain of Sinai, and he was there alone. The word alone here is monos. It is not the same word that was wrongly translated three different ways, but really just meant wilderness or desert. Now, truly, he is climbing the oros, the mountain, to be alone so that he can pray. He would not send away the multitudes until they were fed. Before, the disciples wanted to send the multitudes away hungry so they could get their own food, but Jesus insisted on feeding them before sending them away. This is how we know that he's a good Middle Easterner. He would not send them away because he's a good host, like we talked about last time. 
once he did that, he did go to the mountain to pray, and this is the typical place where one meets the deity. So it's interesting that he goes up there and he's alone. He's not there with God. He goes there to pray. He doesn't need God to be there because he goes there with the teaching. He doesn't need another being, another supernatural being, to envelop him when he goes up there. He goes up to the mountain alone. When Moses went up to the mountain, he went there, and God was there waiting for him. So Jesus is able to do what Moses was not able to do, and that was to go up to the mountain and pray by himself. Now, why is this? What makes Jesus different than Moses is that Jesus embodies the teaching that Moses had to bring down from God that was written by the finger of God. This is where Matthew lays out the distinction in Jesus's character from the character of Moses. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. As I said before, Jesus equipped the disciples with everything they needed from the five books of Moses, and he made them feed the people. Now it says very specifically that he made them get into the boat to go ahead of him. And so they're crossing the Roman Sea, and like Jonah, who encountered bad weather in his journey, in his case, the weather was pushing him in the direction he needed to go because he was fighting against God's instruction. And in a way, the disciples keep fighting Jesus. He keeps telling them what to do, and he has to compel them. The way that the Lord in the Old Testament has to force Jonah to go to the Gentiles, and they lack trust. They're afraid. If they know what their mission is and they're equipped, why would they be afraid when they're crossing the sea? They should have trust, as Paul does, in the content of the teaching with which they were entrusted, and they should have confidence in their mission and fear only the Lord, not the sea. They should fear the one who has power over the waves. And then there's this beautiful scene where Jesus now is moving down from the Mount of Sinai once again, bringing with him always the full force of God's instruction. He's coming across the water, and when they see him, they cry out that he's a phantasma, a ghost. They think they're seeing a ghost. Now, when you hear this as part of the entire section, which is labeled chapter 14 in later manuscripts, the section of Matthew, you heard that John the Baptist was beheaded. Then you saw that Jesus picked up the baton and kept moving. You see that the disciples refused to recognize what it is Jesus is carrying. And now suddenly Jesus is still on the move from the time that he received the baton from John the Baptist. And he's the one now having to cross the sea like the Lord in Genesis who has to do things for the people because they keep fighting him. Jesus now is doing it himself once again. And they think they see a phantom, a ghost. But literarily, it's as though they're seeing the ghost of John the Baptist. Herod murdered John the Baptist, but his ghost is still on the move. And it's very powerful that Jesus is mistaken for this ghost, so to speak. Is he mistaken, or maybe Herod was correct? Maybe Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Maybe this is John the Baptist's ghost. And that's what's beautiful, is that there's an irony here, because you're absolutely correct. The teaching that John the Baptist was teaching is the teaching that Jesus 
embodies. Not only does he embody it in a word, in a teaching, but he is, it says twice, peripaton, he was walking around the water. Then later on, it says, peripatunda, they saw him walking around the water. Specifically translating the Hebrew hit halech, which means walking, but it's almost always used in terms of walking according to the precepts of Torah. When Jesus is walking on the water, it isn't to show that he is magical. It isn't to show that he's incorporeal. It shows that even during a storm on the water, he is able to walk according to the precepts of Torah. This is how Matthew removes any kind of excuse from the listener of them not being able to do what God has commanded them to do. Jesus chooses not to do it standing on his head with one arm tied behind his back. He does it while walking on the water. I don't know which one is harder, but he is able to do it. And this removes any kind of idea that somebody can't do what Jesus teaches. The fact that you are always able to teach, underscored by the previous scene when the people seemed to have no food, but Jesus had all the food that they needed. Jesus also shows that you're always able to walk in the ways of the teaching by showing that it can even be done while standing on the water in the storm. This is what the Lord used to bring Jonah so that he had to walk in the way that God wanted him to walk. This connection with Jonah is critical because just as the Lord forced Jonah, he compelled him to do what he was supposed to do. He manipulated the weather to force Jonah on course. The word here in Greek in verse 22 is anakazo, which is to force, to compel. And I want to stress this because in our communities, in our churches, under the influence of secularism and individualism, we like to talk about people choosing to follow God. You don't choose to follow God in the New Testament. There's no choice. You were a slave, he redeemed you from the marketplace and made you his property, a member of his household. And through Jesus Christ, you were adopted as a son or a daughter in his household, but you pertain to Christ. You wear the toga of Christ's household, which is why you're called a Christian and not a Flavian or whatever. So you're in his household and he tells you what to do. And as in the book of Deuteronomy, where there is really no choice, you either obey or you end up in the path of destruction. Here, either the disciples like Jonah obey and cross the Roman Sea with the instruction they were commanded to feed the people in the previous story, or they're done. There is no choice. You can disobey, and at that point, it's up to the master either to throw you out or rescue you. And that's what the teaching of John the Baptist is doing. That's what Jesus is doing here. He is rescuing them from their disobedience. How? Because as in the Gospel of Mark, there is urgency here, and we are grappling with human fear of the power of of tyranny, the power of death. What are they afraid of? Are they afraid of Herod? Are they afraid of the weather? 
or do they fear God's instruction? Do they fear the one who has power over the living and the dead, who has power to destroy a life after death, who has power over even the waves and the wind and the storms? Of course, the irony is that right after the end of the previous chapter, where Jesus was not recognized as a prophet in his own country. Here, when the disciples see him walking on the water, they don't believe that he's a prophet either. They believe that he is a phantasma, some sort of spirit or ghost. Are the disciples even able to recognize that Jesus is the one with the teaching? We'll have to see. Again, I really believe that Matthew and Mark went out for a drink before Matthew wrote this section. Or maybe it was the other way around. But you have, again, this beautiful word that is the signature word of the Gospel of Mark, ephthys. You're dealing with fear now, which is very Markan, but also this beautiful word, ephthys, immediately. In verse 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come, and Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Until now, Jesus has had to compel them to do the right thing because they are being stubborn like Jonah. Now Peter is saying, command me, and Jesus is saying, okay, I command you, and Peter obeys. It does seem like Peter is on the right track because he doesn't say, let me. He says, command me. Now, it's, of course, odd to tell your teacher to command you to do something. But significantly for Peter, the trademark line of Jesus would be that Jesus would compel him. So Peter does want to be compelled. Peter does want Jesus to command him. Peter does want to try to follow the teaching. That's why he's willing to get out of the boat. He wants to walk in the way, but he has some trouble walking and he has some nervousness about walking according to these ways, just like the disciples were nervous about having enough teaching to go around when they were out in the desert with the multitudes. When they see Jesus walking according to the way, according to the Torah, peripateo, they understand what Jesus is demonstrating to them. Peter wants to try and do this thing. But seeing the wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, you are certainly God's son. That sounds nice, but it's actually shameful. So you needed a magic trick in order to trust that this one who is your teacher and has been giving you instruction in the Lord's precepts, only now when you see the weather change, do you, quote, refer to him as God's son? You have little faith? I mean, come on, Peter. You didn't trust. Not really. So, you know, what's the value of you saying, command me, if when you are given the commandment, you don't trust? Peter is like the one who here's the word. <laughs> but then as soon as the weather gets rough, remember the parable of the sower, Dr. Benton, he starts to falter. Very tricky text. Peter didn't trust that when the going got difficult, he'd be able to walk in the ways of the teaching. 
the fact that at the end it says that the disciples worshipped him and called him beautiful, glorious names, ironically underscore how they chose not to try to walk in his ways. When things got difficult, they stayed in the boat and said nice things about him. Instead, when things get difficult, get out of the boat and walk. If you're on land and things are difficult, walk. If things are going well, walk. And if things are violent, walk. Jesus is purposely removing the stumbling blocks that keep you from walking. When you have your path lit by the light of the gospel, the light of the teaching, you will not stumble. Jesus sets this up to show that they don't have faith. They didn't have enough stamina to teach when it appeared there wasn't enough to teach. This is Matthew. Jesus is like a centurion commanding one of his soldiers. And the soldier doubts the commandment. He doesn't trust the instruction. And the worst thing on the battlefield is when you tell a soldier, take this position, and they don't trust that it's the right decision, and they hesitate. Someone, if not the soldier himself, someone's going to take a bullet for their uncertainty because they doubted the command that was given by the centurion. Or, I mean, centurions didn't have guns, but you get the point of the analogy. They're going to get a spear in their side. So always understand that it's about trusting and obeying without hesitation. If you have time to think about what you think about walking on water, then you don't trust the commandment. When John the Baptist was teaching the teaching, he was killed, his head on a platter. Nevertheless, the teaching continued. When there was no food to feed the multitudes in the desert, the teaching was enough. There was enough to feed them. When the storm was surrounding them and was keeping them from walking, the teaching was enough. Relying on the teaching, having faith in the teaching, believing the teaching, that you can always do it. You can always teach the teaching, and there is nothing, not even chopping your head off, that can prevent this teaching from spreading. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word to all in that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick, and they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were cured. This again reminds me of the prophecy of Jonah, because the word carried by Jesus Christ, the word that John the Baptist preached, which is represented by our Lord Jesus Christ in the story of Matthew here in this scene, that word, the word which came to the disciples, is now landing on the beachhead of the Gentiles, this fertile plain of Gennesaret, fertile for the sowing of God's seed in Matthew. Jesus is the one who has the agency and who lands on this Gentilic beach. And the minute he lands, they recognize him. They don't see him as a phantom. They recognize him and they send word throughout the land, throughout the district, and then they trust him, and so therefore they are healed. And of course, we have to always understand healing, not as some kind of personal healing or psychological transformation, because always the healing of the body 
in Scripture is not about the individual. The individual who has a body here is a metaphor for the community. You make the entire body of Israel whole. You make the entire body of the church whole. And right now Jesus is evangelizing the Gentiles in chapter 14 in order to fill the 12 baskets so that there's a full accounting and humanity in this sense is made whole. Will they trust in it? Will they follow it? Will they continue it? This is the judgment that will ultimately come to those who have received the teaching. Now, it seems positive in the way that Peter's initial statement, Rich, seemed positive. Command me, Master. They did, upon recognizing Jesus, immediately preach him. But does that mean that the Gentiles are better? Does that mean, ultimately, that this body is healed, so to speak? That remains to be seen. And if you're betting that even the Gentiles stumble, I'll give you a hint. You sound like somebody who's starting to think scripturally. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.